Job Additional I told you all that we were limiting our sessions on the book of Job to the four we just completed, and I'm very grateful to those of you who have favorably commented on how concise and helpful those sessions were. But they were concise, really, only because I just decided to leave out a lot of very important information. I'm aware, of course, that there are almost endless numbers of directions that a more detailed study of the book of Job could generate and as much detail as we might be able to endure delving into. I tried to avoid that, but that's produced a dilemma. I was planning on using our introductory look at Job as a lead-in to a separate but connected exploration of the much larger and even more demanding study, that of being an exploration of the origins of evil, the spiritual warfare, God's intention for all of creation. Simple subjects, right? All of them very demanding, but very important. So that places us in this present middle ground where I need to reopen Job in order to take us into the new territory we want to head toward. So does that make this an additional hour in Job, or does it make it the introduction of a new series? Maybe it doesn't matter in the long run, but I think it will be helpful to all of us to keep our focus if we are aware that this hour uh, is really a wrap-up of some unfinished business in Job previously, but also at the same time a necessary introduction to where we're headed. So, if you'll allow me, let me take us back briefly into some aspects of Job we only barely covered, and let us delve more deeply into those elements we only slightly introduced. I don't think it will be boring to you if we offer a quick overview of the traditional way the story of Job has been seen by most teachers and listeners. Job is described by both the narrator and by God in the narration as, quote, a perfect man who does what is right and abhors evil. Now, words can't make it clearer that Job is not sinning. Job also seems to purposefully instigate what we might call, for lack of a better term, a wager with the accuser. Wager is not my favorite way of stating it, but it does seem clear that God is the initiator of this coming conflict. God is the one who brings Job directly to the attention of this accuser, whom we all come to know eventually as the devil. This accuser replies that Job is only good because God has protected him from evil, and that if God would allow Satan to strike Job, the real truth would come out about who and what Job really is. Now you know the story. Let me interject here a footnote, but an important footnote that we need to keep in mind. When it comes to establishing trustworthy scriptural doctrine, we need to be careful to understand that the kind of writing Job is, is not a, a, a place that uh, provides the level of authority that, say, the Gospels or the Book of Romans provides. We can glean truth from the story, but that's all we can do. We cannot make foundational, concrete, doctrinal statements of things 
that are unclear. What is the Satan exactly? Does he or it have a direct relationship to God as some kind of co-authority in the spirit realm? That and many related such questions need to be placed under the greater, clearer light of the New Testament revelation. This hopefully will become clear as we move forward in this study of spiritual warfare, but please keep in mind that we grope for clarity in Job. We know in part we offer the best we can in this fog, but we dare not be too dogmatic with certain points. They may or may not be helpful. They are offered in that spirit. The satanic attack begins first on Job's property, then on his children. Job says, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's certainly no sin in this response. But the question arises, at least always has in my mind ever since I was a boy, is that statement accurate? Did God take away what he had given? Then Job is hit with terrible suffering in his body, and his wife tells him to curse God and die. Job says to her, you speak foolishly. Should we not receive both good and evil from his hand? And we are given a view of Job's stoic resignation to the satanic attack, though he does not know it's a satanic attack. And finally, there's an attack on Job's body and his response again, is stoic. This is not sin. Job is dutifully responding out of the theology of his culture. He thinks God is the source of all things, both good and evil, and he's trying to stay true to his faith in God's ultimate mysterious purpose in what he says to his wife. But again, is this accurate to say that we should stoically endure evil and think it comes from God? Then when his friends learn of his sorrow, they come to comfort him. For seven days, they sit in grieving silence. Job does not speak. But at the end of that grieving period, his friends begin to speak, and what they say comes straight out of the same cultural theology that formed Job's previous two responses. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and should we not expect to receive both good and evil from the Lord's hand? And in neither of these responses is Job sinning. Yet in neither of these responses is he fully accurate in what he's saying. But when his friends begin their examination of Job and basically accuse him of some secret sin, as the only possible explanation of the terrible things that have happened and are happening, Job explodes with words. He curses the day he was born. He curses the day he was conceived. He hears their sentence against him that evil has happened to him only because he is doing evil. But Job will not bow to this for one moment. And though Job most certainly would have previously agreed with that, that easy answer theology with regard to other people, now he is having a great inner turmoil over it and a transformation. Now he will not accept easy answers 
he will not admit to sin he knows he's not guilty of. His theology will not work now. It is no longer a shallow, simple, black and white formula of bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. Job knows now this is a lie. But he doesn't know what to do with it or how to relate to it. For there are things in the invisible realm going on that he has no awareness of. Please remember, we have a ringside seat where we are able to know firsthand that God agrees with Job. God has called him perfect, upright, loving righteousness and hating evil. All through the unfolding saga of the story of Job, God says Job has not sinned in what he says. Even when Job says that God is not doing what is right. <laughs> so what do we do with this? Well, I say this carefully and thoughtfully, but for most of my life, I've heard people in church do with all this exactly what Job's friends did. I've heard them blame Job, agree with Job's friends, and assume that God's four-chapter answer to Job was nothing more or less than a blazing rebuke of Job's arrogance, and that Job was getting pretty much what he deserved. And that left that, that that whole idea left me twisting inside with suppressed rage against what I considered terrible injustice. And since I could not bear to carry that around in me, I allowed it to smolder into hard, cold passivity about it, full of unanswered and unanswerable questions. But since those questions also became too overwhelming to consider consciously, I just allowed the questions to sink deep down in a place of unconscious conflict like a heavy, undigested stone in my stomach. If we keep all the facts in the early chapters, then the final chapters of Job, and we, if we keep all those in mind, <clears throat> we have to come to a, face a difficult problem. That is, how do we understand God's final confrontation with Job? I've studied many commentaries, and yet there are not even a tenth of the material uh, in my study that there are uh, out there. But of the many commentaries and books I've poured over, more times than I can recite, the final estimation in most of them is that Job did speak sinfully, even blasphemously, uh, blasphemously, and that God finally appears to him to shut him down, lay him low, and put him in his place. Some commentators went so far as to say God was letting Job know in majestic, bombastic, crushing terms that Job was a mere nothing. And they conclude seemingly, understandably, based on the flow of language and the translations and common interpretations, if we read the text right, which I don't think we do, that Job is less than nothing. After all, he says himself that he despises himself and repents in dust and ashes. For years I would read such stuff and not only not be satisfied with any of it, but would become all over again very angry at the entire narrative. I would not allow myself to become openly mad at God because Jesus' cross 
seemed to answer all my hardest questions about the ultimate revelation of God's character and goodness, but still, there had to be some better way of understanding both the story of Job and the greater story of suffering evil in human history in general, a story that just simply made no sense as the answer, just made even less sense. Job is righteous. Job is not guilty. Job has spoken truth about God. Job's friends have not spoken truth about God. But Job's friends sounded like the writers of the commentaries who say Job needed to be slapped down. And on top of all that, God does seem to be the one who slaps him down. And God is clearly the initiator of the whole thing. How can any of this make sense or be helpful? Let me just stop and say, there are no quick, easy answers to this. You know, when we're young and early in our walk with God, he's loving and patient and treats us to some degree with parental indulgence. But there comes a point where things get really difficult and it's very demanding. And this is one of those things. So unless you're willing to delve into the difficulty and wrestle with it and not come up with easy black and white, yes and no, clear answers, but be dependent on the Holy Spirit's revelation. It's best not to even go further than where we are now. It takes time, patience, endurance, study, and most of all, prayerful listening to eventually come to some answers on this level. I don't pretend to be smarter than the gifted writers of many of these commentaries who are far more trained in the languages and cultural background of the scriptures than I am. But with all due respect, when their conclusions leave more questions than answers, it must be right to dig deeper. In our Job study, I mentioned several issues in the, in the text of Job that are huge, cosmic storylines, too big to try to open up in the brief overview we have attempted. So I only mention them. References to creation, the angelic order, Earth's earliest ages, and also references to two cosmic creatures called the Behemoth and Leviathan. I said we would try to address them at another time. Well, I guess this is that another time, because I have not been able to get away from them or the huge issues they connect to. Even when I was not looking for them, Writings concerning all this have come across my desk from unlooked-for places. It's always good to ask obvious questions like, why? Why are these two monsters so vividly portrayed by God to Job in God's answer to him? How many vitally important issues do we miss when we just lazily read over some difficulty to understand uh, passages in a simple way and then sloppy treated, sloppily treated like just some weird ancient poetic something or other. Then get on to the parts we think we already know so we don't have to wrestle with hard questions. I said that I believe Job is placed at the beginning of the record of human history for a very strategic purpose. That purpose was to say to us who would read it, that there would be a historical, uh, a history long unfolding 
of events that would not make any sense to those who believe in a good, faithful, and loving God. Humanity would suffer greatly in that unfolding story. And so early in the scriptural record is a story of a man who is not a Jew, for the covenant identity of Israel was not yet established, though there are some striking parallels between Job and Abraham I hope to get in before we are done here. Job is to be seen as every man, every human. And that is even more important now in this deeper dive into the meaning of his story. So what is God saying to us when he points us to the unfair, unjust, cruel treatment of God's of, of Job's suffering? For that's the only conclusion we can come to, that that is God's estimation of, of how Job was treated. Before we dive into that vital question, stop with me for a moment and consider this question. Have you ever been in a situation when you know all the details, but you cannot explain those details to others in a way that will make sense to them? Think, for instance, of your children. Something has occurred that on the surface looks black and white, case closed. But you know from a greater, more mature, more informed level that it is not that simple. It's not black and white. There are nuances that, though they are subtle, make all the difference in how the situation should be understood. And yet the child's present level of understanding will not allow them to hear your deeper explanation. You must ask them to trust you. Yet to them it appears you are part of the problem. Well, hopefully you've not been in such a dilemma, but surely you can imagine what such a conflict would be like. Now all analogies fail at some point. When it comes to God and Job, we might assume that God, being who he is, should be able to explain things to Job in such a way that would at least clarify the conflict and shed some light on the mystery, but he does not. At least he does not in a way that satisfies our struggles, but Job is satisfied. So now, Job does understand something that we still do not understand. And we want Job to explain it to us, but he does not. He only says that after his encounter with God, that he despises. Now, your translations add the word himself. He despises himself. But the Hebrew does not include that word. It says only that Job despises. Well, what does he despise? Well, if you read up to the place where Job despises, you will see that Job has answered God after God's first list of huge demanding questions by telling God, quote, I will answer you by not answering you. I'm paraphrasing, but accurately. Job is telling God, I'm afraid of trying to match wits with you, so I will answer you by keeping quiet. But then we have a second list of very demanding questions from God. As if God is saying, quote, I'm not satisfied with your answer of silence. I want you to wrestle with me. If that is so, and I obviously think it is, then God begins his examination of Job in chapter 40, and then again in chapter 42, with the same statement. You say again, that you are not going to answer me, 
but I'm telling you, I want you to stand up and talk to me like a man. Now, remember, in our previous time together on this, I, I talked about how it's natural, maybe, for us readers, especially if we've grown up in a, a kind of an abusive cultural background, it's natural for us to interpret these words of God as that of a bully. Just stand up and gird up your loins and talk to me like a man. That's not what's going on here. Then we have a second list of very demanding questions from God. As if God is saying, I'm not satisfied with your silence. I want you to wrestle with me. Stand up like a man. Back in chapter 15, Eliphaz says to Job, Can a man be righteous before God? And he uses the Hebrew word enosh, which refers to weak, broken, sinful, fallen man. Well, the obvious answer to that would be no. Can a man be righteous before God? But for two separate times in his first conversation with Job, and then again repeated at the beginning of his second conversation with Job, and conversation is what God meant it to be, God does not use the word enosh when he tells him to stand up like a man. He uses the word gibber, which is strong, valiant, warrior. In an address by Professor Richard Middleton, he raises this question. Why are there two separate addresses of Job by God? We all, me included, for years and years just read through those two as if they were one not noticing that they truly are two separate approaches at Job by God with very similar beginnings. I believe Professor Middleton is accurate in his answer. God was never once trying to rebuke Job or put him in his place or diminish or shame him at all. Now, he is trying to put him in his place, but it's not a low place of diminishment, but it's a high place of the giver. To use Professor Middleton's words, God wanted a vigorous dialogue partner in Job. God wanted Job to stand up like a giver and wrestle with huge, difficult questions. God not only uses things from the natural world, but he uses things in the dark supernatural world, the gates of death, the doors of the sea, which refers to the dark spirit realm, not the earthly oceans, with which to probe Job's thinking. He will not allow him to be passive, intimidated, or silent in the face of all this that is happening. God describes a world that is wild, untamed, and dangerous. And God does not define this wildness as evil per se, though if left to its own will, certainly becomes evil. Now, here we enter into one of those foggy places of conjecture. We are seeing, but only through a glass darkly. But think with me. 
Is God saying to Job something like this, maybe? See all of creation in its many, many forms, Job. I made it all. I considered it all good. But I made it with potentials that must be tamed, guided, trained, and brought under greater and wiser expression. Man is to be the ruler of all this. And he must rule over himself to rule over them. And in this great dangerous process, there will be conflicts and losses. There will be temporary losses. For when the process necessary to bring forth sons is complete, I will restore everything that has been lost better than it was before its tragedies. But you can't know that yet. All you can know is that there is a wildness in existence set in motion by me, but it is being seduced and deformed by another rising power in the universe. Again, a power I created free and good, but a power that has chosen to disregard me and attempt to go its own way, be its own God. But all at my and your expense, Joe. And I created you as my co-ruler, co-wrestler against all this. In order for you and I to unite in what will eventually be a result so great, so wonderful, that no evil, no matter how terrible as it is happening, will be worthy of remembrance once its full restoration has come. For it has not even entered into your imagination the things I'm preparing for those who love me. So learn to endure the agonizing process. I'm eventually making all things new. God wants sons and daughters. Yes, he loves us as little children, and in a certain sense, we will always be that to him, for he is infinitely above us. Just as your grown children, in a certain sense, will always be your babies, still no parent in their right mind wants a perpetual baby to interact with, no matter how cute and cuddly. God wants sons and daughters. This long unfolding cosmic drama of bringing forth mature sons is the story of all history, one we will need to spend time focusing on exclusively sometime soon. It has to do with other great cosmic dramas that will need to be included, such as the Trinity, the person of Christ in prehistory, the incarnation and redemption, the restoration of the earth, the completion of the creation of God, and God being all in all. But we won't do that today. The theory I offer here, ignited by Professor Middleton, is that God comes to Job not in a tone meant to belittle, abuse, or humiliate, but on the contrary, God wants a mature, meaningful interaction with Job on a high level. That brings to mind the words of Psalm 8, where David asks, What is man? And he uses the word enosh. What is enosh that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would care for him? You have made him a little lower than the gods, crowned him with glory and honor. So once again, we see this dual human identity, one of weakness, smallness, and seeming insignificance, then at the same time, one of kingly royalty over all creation. The message 
early on here in Job and other places is that man, the Enosh, is also the Giber. And we see them in all humanity, don't we? We see horrible brokenness and breathtaking achievement. We see monstrous disfigurement and godlike beauty. As Oswald Chambers said, man is a glorious ruin. God is prodding Job to step away from the Enosh posture and embrace the Gibber warrior. His entire life, belongings, family, and personhood have been fiendishly attacked. This is an ongoing embattled condition of all humans, and Job is the prototype, and God wants Job to not cower as a nothing under the evil foot of the Hasatan, but to take his rightful place against evil. This is the picture, I believe, that is being communicated here. And that is the picture I believe we are to battle against uh, when we come up against human tradition that wants to just make Job a, a worm. Job is influenced by religion. Nothing he has said or done is sin, but it is not what God wants. So in his second attempt at getting Job to talk with him, he unveils the two mysterious cosmic creatures of Behemoth and Leviathan. These are not merely poetic ways of referring to a hippo and a crocodile, for heaven's sakes. All you have to do is to lay that idea aside is to read. No uh, earthly animal has the characteristics attributed to Behemoth and Leviathan. I won't take time to unpack the history of their identities in ancient literature, and you will probably be thankful for that point. But let's just say here for now that the ancient pagan cultures all had their creation stories, their creation myths, and they consisted of dualities, of co-equal conflicts between seeming good and evil, chaos and order. Most of them were not so much conflicts between good and evil as sheer power plays, with the winner emerging as merely the winner. <clears throat> good versus evil was not so much the focus as was winner versus loser. And of course, that's reflected in the behavior of the pagan world. What comes from Hebrew revelation is the vision of Yahweh, not as a power among other powers, but as the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator of everything that is, and then as the one capable of containing, controlling, and subduing the chaos powers. He even more importantly, though, is eventually seen as not only a power, the power, but as love. He is Father. And love generates not mere force, but goodness. So though he, he is even the initiator of the fabric of all creation, he is also meaning. And meaning points to relationship, goodness, beauty, and truth. What appeared to pagans to be some eternal chaos, which had to be tamed by gods in a never-ending battle of forces, turns out in reality to be neither eternal nor sheer power against power, but was brought into existence on command and was brought into order by the Creator, who is above all else, Father. 
With that in mind, when we read Yahweh's description of Leviathan, it can almost, almost bring to mind a proud father describing the amazing feats of an over-energetic, boundary-testing, overgrown offspring. It's as if God is saying, yes, he has to be subdued, but isn't he amazingly majestic in his power? Now, some will certainly take maybe some offense at this. Leviathan is mostly seen as evil. But if we believe God is the creator of all and everything he made has been pronounced good and been very good by God, how is Leviathan evil? We might say Leviathan is merely a poetic picture used by God in Job and in other parts of Scripture, such as Psalm 74 or Isaiah or Amos or maybe Jonah, as just an illustration. But that doesn't seem to hold up when reading these texts. Was he or it eventually devolved into a tool of evil? Or is he or it? a symbol of wild, boundaryless, raw potential energy that, if not corralled by wisdom, ends up producing destruction, which is an evil. We could go on and on with this line of conjecture, but the only point I want to bring home to us here for now is that God is, I believe, looking for a mature response from Job. Because God's purpose in all this is to say, if I can put it into words, listen, Job, you're the prototype of what the entire human race is going to have to face. I want them to have an understanding of all this as best they can. So I want you to begin for them. There's a power unleashed in the universe that is dangerous, malevolent, hostile, and destructive. I'm the only one who can contain, control, and eventually destroy it. But the process will be long and very difficult to understand. In fact, it will not be understood at all for centuries. And men will come up with all sorts of theories and myths and ideas about it all and about me, which will be mostly wrong. So I need you to not crumble into a heap of self-defeating, self-loathing, self-abuse. I want you to stand up, tighten your belt, and talk to me like a gibber, not an enosh. Stand up and fight like a man, like my mature son. This unfolding scenario will not be understandable even to you for many ages, but it is a necessary process. For the evil power that seems let loose on the universe is being lured into a long, unfolding trap. And eventually I will not only entrap it, but completely destroy all it has produced. And not only destroy, but I will restore all it has ruined, so that freedom and love will have both been given their place in my universe. Many, even most of what this evil power does, to and through men, will be of such a seemingly horrific evil nature that it will seem that nothing, no matter how miraculous, could ever erase such horror. But what I am going to do is so glorious 
that not only will it erase the evil, but it will produce a goodness that no person can even imagine with the present limited view of reality that exists now. Job ends his encounter with God by saying, I've heard of you with my ears, but now my eyes see you and I despise. And remember, the translators have supplied the word myself. But if this line of reasoning you've been wrestling to unpack here is true, then it may be that Job is speaking in faith that what he despises is his previous way of thinking. Because his next word is that he repents. And the word repent means, among other things, to change thinking, change the way you think. He is repenting, changing his mind from its former way of thinking. But you might say, but he also is repenting in dust and ashes, which are symbols of man's fallenness, weakness, and eventual death. He's speaking of the enosh. Yes, he is. But think about this. The only other time that exact phrase, dust and ashes, is used in that way in all of Scripture is found in the mouth of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham begins his intercession to save Sodom. Sodom is about to become dust and ashes in judgment. Abraham says to God, I have taken it upon myself, who is just an Enosh, to speak to the Lord as a giver, even though I'm dust and ashes. The only two times the phrase is used in all of Scripture is in the mouth of Abraham and Job, and that is very significant. In both cases, these two are being called by God to come up to a place of priestly power on behalf of the entire earth though they themselves are, quote, dust and ashes, Enosh, they are being called by the Father up to the place of the Geber warrior on behalf of all of mankind. A seemingly small but very big point related to this is found in Job 42, verse 7, which is one of the commonly known verses that many of us could quote. God says to Job's friends, You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. But the tiny proposition of is a mistranslation. It should be to, not of. You have not spoken to me what is right. This may mean that the religious words of Job's friends may have all been correct theology in their culture, but they had no intercessory power before God. Job, in all his railing and pushing back against what he knew to be false doctrine about the nature and character of God, spoke of God what may have been wrong. God has taken from me. God has not done what is right by me. God is cruel. But Job did not speak to God what was right. He spoke the truth. God is not the author of evil. God is not unjust. God is good in all his ways. And now that Job has seen God face to face, he despises what he used to believe of him. 
and like Abraham, now speaks as a weak fallen Enosh, but in doing so, is joining with his Redeemer, Creator, Savior as a giver, a man of warring, saving faith on behalf of all the earth. So let me make sure you understand what I'm saying. God is looking for intercessors. He's look, looking for sons and daughters. He's looking for men who, though they are Enosh, will stand in faith as Gibber. And he is looking for them to join with him in battling for the over, over, uh, overcoming and destroying of evil and the restoration of the earth and the salvaging of all men. All this is written for our benefit, Paul says in Romans 15. Think of the book of Job, a Gentile, as you listen to Paul's statement about what was written in the ancient times on our behalf. Paul says, For whatever was written before times was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope and remember, biblical hope is a guaranteed future, not an I hope so. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded toward one another after the example of Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So receive one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I saw that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, the Jewish covenant, on behalf of God's truth. But it was for the purpose of confirming the promise of the fathers and to all the Gentiles that they might glorify God for mercy's sake, as has been written, I therefore joyfully praise you among the Gentiles and will sing praise I will therefore joyfully praise you among the Gentiles and will sing psalms to your name. And again, it says, Rejoice, Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all the Gentiles. Let all the people sing him praises. And again, Isaiah says, Therefore, from Jesse's root, one will rise who will rule the Gentiles. On him the Gentiles will hope. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, one closing thought. Time is a mysterious thing. To us who are limited to it, it seems ludicrous that Job's early experience of suffering that led to final restoration could be directly tied to Paul's words here in Romans chapter 15, words about ultimate hope for all the nations. Yet, from our higher, wider perspective given to us by Scripture, by history, and most of all by the Holy Spirit, it is clear that it is directly tied to each other. Job simply could not know all that I just said when it seems it would have helped him endure his suffering, but he couldn't know it. It was necessary for him to suffer only in order that his suffering might be forever under, transformed into joy. That is the hope Paul and all the scriptures is speaking about. So a final point that is maybe a small point, but maybe huge when it is fully understood, 
in the light of the gospel, which has erased the barrier between Jew and Gentile, so that there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor free, but all are one in Christ. Something is mentioned as a seeming afterthought in the closing words of Job, and that is that all his daughters are listed by name, and they were included as full heirs to their father's wealth. This is so unprecedented in the context of ancient culture that, to me, it's a small but impressive clue that the story of Job's restoration is a powerful prophetic picture of the coming full restoration of all things that the kingdom of God will bring when it comes in its fullness to restore the cosmos. Well, maybe this is a better place to close our initial journey through Job. It's been a necessary, though, of course, short examination of some very large demanding issues. Lord willing, we'll continue this journey soon.